0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust.
0: This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpithanshul. Did you raise an eyebrow at this headline last year? Woman diagnosed with broken heart syndrome after the death of her dog. It may be easy to ridicule the notion that someone feels profound grief over the loss of a dog or cat. After all, a pet is certainly not human. But humans have developed attachment to their pets. Today, Where We Live, we'll find out why. We'll also talk about the role of veterinarians and how pet care, including decisions to euthanize, can take a toll on their mental health. First, how did you move through the grieving process after the loss of a pet? Did you cover up your emotions from friends or coworkers because you worried they wouldn't understand? Where We Live put out a question on social media asking listeners to talk about their pets and how they coped with their loss. Elizabeth called our voicemail line to talk about her husband's cat
2: cat suddenly passed away Uh, gosh I guess going on eight or nine years ago and the effect of losing that animal on him is still profound he still has trouble discussing the cat in fact I'm the one to call you I don't think he would be able to talk to you about losing pudge without becoming really emotional um that was his baby and uh, that cat taught him how to love something unselfishly without asking for anything in return.
0: We're going to share some voicemails from listeners later this hour. You can also join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show. Leslie Irvin is professor of sociology at University of Colorado Boulder. She studies the role of animals in society. And one of her books is If You Tame Me, Understanding Our Connections with Animals. She's joining us today from a studio at the University of Colorado Boulder. Leslie, welcome to our show. Thank you. Uh, We played that listener voicemail. uh, And again, she said that um, they lost their cat eight or nine years ago. And it's still hard for her husband to talk about that particular pet. Um, Is that
3: common? That is very common. And so much of what she said uh, resonated with what we find in the research on people's relationships with their animals. We see them as innocent and trusting. And we see them as loving us unconditionally. And when we lose that bond, which is different from what we might have with humans, where uh, you know they do judge us and uh, we have conflict with them, when we, we lose that connection, it can be very traumatic and long-lasting.
0: You're a sociologist. So tell us why you started to focus on the relationship between humans and animals.
3: Well, it's something that I've always been interested in, but it's also something that sociologists have dismissed for a long time because uh, my discipline was very concerned with defending the human-animal boundary. You know, humans have culture and we have language, but animals are different. They, they don't count because they can't reflect, they can't use language, they basically don't have um, thought processes that are meaningful for social interaction. And when I considered doing this research, fortunately there were a couple other people whose work I could rely on, but I basically said, well, you know, what if if people are not just being silly when they say they love their animals, when they say that their animals love them back, when they uh, grieve their animals, when they say they have intense relationships with their animals. What if we take that seriously as data instead of just dismissing it? And that's how it started out. And it's gone in, in deep and broad directions from there.
0: Uh when you think about your research, uh, oftentimes, as you said, uh, we see our animals as loving us unconditionally. Uh, people think of their animals of, of having emotions, of having that sense of love for their human owner. What does research tell us about that relationship?
3: Well, from the human side, it's a very, very old relationship. We've We've been um, interacting with, relating to dogs and cats for a very long time. And dogs in particular have ways of connecting with us, especially through um, eye connection that that makes that relationship seem very much like a friendship. I'm not saying cats can't have the same connection, but it's it's a different kind of connection with dogs because they are very, very interested in what we're doing, what we're looking at, what we're pointing at, things like that. So it it feels like they are very, very interested in us.
0: Uh, when we think about um, how we have welcomed animals into our home, can you walk us through how our interaction with animals changed, where we see them now as family members, but before um, how there was an actual use for them, so to speak?
3: Yeah, for, for much of human history, Animals were mostly useful. You know, they were the herding, guarding, catching mice, catching other other animals considered vermin. They were they were outdoors and they had jobs. Um, as Western societies began to urbanize, began to industrialize, uh, we moved animals indoors. Uh, dogs moved first, and. Cats really didn't move indoors very comfortably until after World War II with the invention of cat litter. But dogs and cats no longer, for the most part, they no longer work. Their Their jobs are to um, keep us company, to entertain us. We don't expect them to be um, out watching the, the herd all day, to be out in the barn all day. Now, to be sure, there are still many animals who, many dogs and cats who do fill those roles. But by and large, our companion animals are exactly that. They're expected to be our companions. And so having them in our homes uh, makes them, qualifies them as members of the family. And uh, that signifies a really different change in what we think of as the human-animal boundary because Uh, You know, only humans can be members of our quote-unquote real family. So when we say, this dog is a member of my family, this is a significant change in the relationship across history.
0: Leslie Irvin is professor of sociology at University of Colorado Boulder, who studies the role of animals in society. Uh, she's our guest today as we talk about uh, human attachment to pets. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, grief when we lose uh, our pets. And you can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Leslie, you mentioned as we welcomed in dogs and then cats into our home, um, they've become members of our family. And when we lose them, why is it so difficult in Your research uh, that this is a difficult moment to make that decision about um, an animal maybe being euthanized, but can you walk us through some of the um, attachment that we have that leads us to that point where it's so difficult to to get over their death?
3: Sure, and and this differs by level of attachment. We we can have animals around us, well, some people could have animals around them who are not attached to them at all, but for the most part we build an emotional attachment to us and the animals are physically dependent on us for food, for water, for shelter, uh, for being able to go to the bathroom, for getting veterinary care. And they're they're completely dependent on us. And if it comes time to making a euthanasia decision, um, it's not always clear, is it the right time? Uh, should we do more? Should we have done less? What could we have done differently? And so that their dependence on us and their their level of trust that they appear to place in us um, puts a tremendous burden that we don't face with our human family members.
0: Because we can't ask them uh, what their wishes are. Exactly. Again, this is where we live as we talk about our attachment to pets, also grief when we lose our pet. Uh, we know grief is acceptable in our society when we think about the death of a human relative or friend. But how have people reacted to you when you've lost a beloved dog or cat, a horse, another animal? You can join our conversation at the number 860-275-7266. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we asked our listeners uh, to chime in via our voicemail line about um, their relationship with their pets. And we heard from a woman named Nancy um, about uh, the moment when she realized it was time to let her dog Rose go. Rose was 13 years old at the time.
4: Normally, I would just lock the kennel door and leave, but I just happened to turn around and saw Rose looking back at me. Uh, I knew then it was her time. I called my now ex-husband. We brought her to the vet. I held her in my arms and we brought her home and buried her. When I went to work later that morning and told my coworkers she was gone, they were surprised that I had come to work at all. The truth was I couldn't bear being alone in the house without her. She really was a buffer between me and a miserable marriage. The hardest decisions we have to make about our pets are usually the best ones. It's a very unselfish act as hard as it is, to let them go. I feel her presence to this day and miss her more than any animal I've ever owned. I also have grieved her loss more than any human, which I don't find strange because dogs really are unconditional love, and it's a rare human that possesses that same trait.
0: Again, that was Nancy calling into our voicemail here at WNPR. Leslie, uh, could you talk a little bit about um, of what Nancy shared with us? Because she's ta- not only talking about this uh, attachment that she had with her, her dog, Rose, for uh, 13 years of her life, but it also uh, was a companion that helped her through, um, as she said, a miserable marriage. And that's also part of our pets when we think about the stages of life that we go through. And our pets are always there with us along the way.
3: That's right. Some some of our friendships uh, with humans don't last as long as our relationships with animals. Uh, if they are some of our cats in particular can be very long long lived. Um, the caller talked about the, the spiritual connection with her dog, but you can also sense the loss physically, materially. When you look around the house, you know well that's where uh, the dog used to used to lie. Um, the dog would always be here when I got up in the morning. Um, this is the time I always took the dog for a walk. Uh, this is where the cat's food used to be. And we, we feel those physical and material losses c- because animals structure our lives. Um, I recently did research for a book on homeless people who live on the streets with their pets, and many of them. In fact, most talked about how their animals provide a reason for living. And for a few few people, they even described their animals as their suicide barrier. This is all I have to make me keep going, they told me.
0: Uh, we hear those anecdotes from, from uh, people we know, when you lose an animal, uh, sometimes the hardest thing is to go home and they're not there to greet you at the end of the day. Um, and we were also talking, uh, Leslie, about, uh, again, this uh, feeling of grief that uh, many of us go through at some point in our lives if we have an animal. But as a sociologist, do you see it changing where people are not afraid to talk about pet loss? Or is there st- are still stigma
3: surrounding that? It's changing. There is still some stigma, but much less than there used to be. Uh, I think of 20 years ago, it w- would be more like, oh, get over this. It, you know, it's just a cat or it's just a dog. But I think now we have, I talked about the, the human-animal uh, boundary breaking down a little bit by taking animals into our family. And I think more and more people are understanding that that blurring even if they don't understand it in so many words but they understand that there is we no longer see this harsh distinction between humans and other animals and a loss of a life is uh, is a loss and we also now have uh, more resources that that recognize the intensity of the connection and the loss so we have pet loss support groups Um, 20 years ago you couldn't even find a sympathy card for the loss of an animal and and now they're they're quite common
0: I think uh, there have been reports that some uh, companies even allow people to take bereavement uh, when they've lost a pet is that something that um, is is more accepted or ridiculed Leslie
3: I've I've heard that it's more common again I think there are a lot of people who would accept it and encourage it but there's still you know there are still people who are uh, very much on the, oh, it's just a dog side of the equation, and think that you should be able to get over it. Mm-hmm.
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the reasons behind why we're so attached to our pets. Also, the grief we experience when we lose them. My guest today is Leslie Irvin, professor of sociology at University of Colorado Boulder, who studies the role of animals in society. She's the author of If You Tame Me, Understanding Our Connections with Animals. Leslie will stay with us after the break, and a veterinarian will join us coming up to talk about one of the most difficult moments for a pet owner, deciding when to euthanize his or her pet. How do veterinarians handle this part of the job? That's coming up, and you can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Nearly seven out of 10 people own a pet today, so why do many of us hide our grief when a pet dies? Is it a fear of being seen as overly emotional or being ridiculed for missing a beloved animal? Veterinarians are the ones pet owners turn to for questions relating to caring for their animal, and those conversations include end of life and deciding when a pet needs to be euthanized. You can join our conversation today, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, my guest uh, from the University of Colorado Boulder, from a studio there, is Leslie Irvin, prof- professor of sociology at the university. She studies the role of animals in society, and she's the author of If You Tame Me, Understanding Our Connections with animals. And joining us now in studio is Dr. Jenna Gianguera, veterinarian and surgeon at Veterinary Specialists of Connecticut here in West Hartford. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what led you to become a veterinarian? Um,
5: I grew up around medicine. Um, My father is a orthopedic surgeon. He's an MD. And so I Was surrounded by it. I went to rounds with him because I was a total nerd. (laughs) Um, And I always, we always had dogs in the house. I I grew up around dogs. And um, I always had a tremendous connection with our pets. Um, And it just sort of, fell into that way. I was daddy's little girl and I wanted to pursue medicine and it just ended up being veterinary instead of humans.
0: (laughs) I've always thought it was, it's a difficult job because your patients can't tell you what's wrong.
5: Uh, yes. And my dad, I mean, I love my dad. (laughs) He's always said that he, he's always told me you're going to be so much smarter than me because your, your patients can't talk to you. And, um, I've always, um, respected that, um, his support for that so yes it is a lot harder and um, they bite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were talking about um, the reasons behind uh, why we've grown attached to our pets, uh, with uh, Leslie, a sociologist at the University of Colorado Boulder. And then part of the discussion uh, that we wanted to turn to is, you know, how do you make that difficult decision or talk uh, with your clients about the time uh, when uh, they have to think about end of life because our animals don't live as long as we'd like. I mean, how do you broach the subject with your clients?
5: Um, it's not an easy conversation to have. Um, nobody enjoys that conversation. Um, I try to approach that conversation from a perspective of um, honesty and also from a place of compassion as well. Um, my job as a veterinarian is to explain what is happening and also provide Perspective to an owner as to what their expectations should be, and the reality is, is that even though medicine has advanced a lot, we we can't treat everything, and we're kind of bound by those um, by those uh, hurdles. Uh, and so, I try to be honest with them. I don't try and sugarcoat it, but also. I don't want to be overly blunt. So it is, it is a balance um, to, to come into that conversation with a compassion, knowing that this is not an easy decision and it's an emotional one, um, and also to be a bit of a support system so that they can ask, feel comfortable
0: asking their questions about why um, and to provide those answers mm-hmm. for them. Um, in veterinary school, is there a lot of time spent on, obviously, there's a procedure with euthanasia, but the conversations that you need to have with the pet owner, is there enough emphasis on, on that?
5: Um, my Where I went to school, we actually had um, a grief counselor on staff, um, which was really nice. The students could go to them when they were... Um, Feeling stressed about school, um, or if they experience their own personal loss, which was a, a great outlet to have as a student. Um, but also, we could provide um, an, an outlet to our clients to to his services after um, after loss. Uh, so. I don't think that every, as far as I am aware, (laughs) I don't think that every veterinary school has that, but I was very lucky to have been exposed to that. Um, It's not taught in a formal course, you know, because so much of that conversation is situational. Um, But because he was there, we did have a lot of emphasis on just how do we communicate to a client about even, um, you know, vaccines or something very very routine and and preventative medicine too.
4: Mm
0: -hmm. Today on Where We Live, we're talking about attachment to pets and also uh, the grief that uh, many of us experience when we lose this animal companion in our lives for for many years, sometimes just a few years. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. In studio with me, Dr. Jenna Giangara, a surgeon and veterinarian at Veterinary Specialists in West Hartford, and also Leslie Irvin joining us from Colorado, she's a professor of sociology, and author of the book, If You Tame Me, Understanding Our Connections with Animals. Um, You mentioned that it's situational, uh, Dr. Gian Gara, and I was thinking about all the different factors that come into play. We got a a Facebook message from Ellen who said that she's cried every day since um, she lost her pet, Um, that my heart hurts all day and aside from sadness there's a lot of guilt because I had to make that heart-wrenching decision to euthanize her. Uh, She writes, my family and friends have been very supportive but my pain's not going away anytime soon and I feel like that um, she was a child to me. And this is the common sentiment that you're hearing?
5: Oh yeah, Um, fur babies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that Um, You know, that's that's totally real for for her to to feel that way. And I think it's okay for her to have those emotions, Um, you know, but if she's struggling with, you know, they say that time heals all wounds, you know, and if she's struggling with how long it has taken her, then I think that, you know, there shouldn't be any um, fear about reaching out to to someone uh, to explain to discuss the grief, um, you know, and sometimes even though family members can be very supportive and friends can be very supportive, sometimes you need to talk to somebody else. And it's not bad or wrong to do that.
0: <laughs> How do you frame uh, euthanasia? Because some are struggle with the idea that um, is it Truly compassionate because they, mm-hmm. they're not sure is it really the right decision. Uh, sometimes it comes down to um, is it a treatment that I can afford to give to my pet, and mm-hmm. if I can't, does that mean it's uh, the right time to let this animal go? How yeah. do you how do you help them through that?
5: It's I think that. Um, for an owner, it is a it's a hard decision to come to because you know something you had mentioned in the previous segment too is that you can't ask the patient what they think you know, and um, and so there is a lot of responsibility and weight that that carries, um, and so a lot of owners can harbor a lot of guilt about that because they feel like they've somehow done wrong or have given up on their pets. And this is something that they love and they, you know, they chose to have a dog or cat or a horse or whatever in their life. And now they're choosing that they can't have that in their life anymore. And that's that's hard to to emotionally come to the decision. Um, So what I try to express to them, you know, depending on the situation, is that what they're choosing is not um, is not a cop out. Um, they're not walking away from their pet by choosing this as an option, but that it's truly a treatment plan. Um, and it is a permanent treatment plan, um, sadly, um, but it is a treatment plan. And, and part of my oath as a veterinarian is to you know alleviate suffering. And if a patient is suffering, then this is something that is reasonable. Um, and it's humane, and um, you know it's it is it's a hard decision to make, absolutely. And it's not a decision it's a decision that I've had to make in my own personal life, and it's um, not something that I would envy to have to make.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it hard to put judgment aside if you know that this animal, before you, could live uh, a few more years, uh, but because of the cost of a treatment mm-hmm. that a pet owner can't afford it. Yeah. that you have to then make this you this decision to euthanize.
5: Yeah, that is something that it kind of muddies the water is that the decision is not a um, a, a purely logical decision in the sense of this is a disease that I can't fix and now this is a way that we can alleviate suffering but also there is the financial component to it. And so that does carry, that is a source of where I think some of this owner guilt um, that they carry because I didn't provide enough somehow um, because of the f- the financial burden. And um, when that comes into play, I try to, Again, you know, that is a component of the decision-making process and unfortunately it is a reality. But I try to focus on the medicine, which is what I can what I can comment on most heavily because I I can't you know, I can't make sure you win the lottery, you know. <laughs> I have no control over that. But I can explain to you the disease and I can explain to you the reality of the situation. And even if you had all the money in the world, sometimes that's not enough.
0: Uh, Leslie Irvin's with us from the University of Colorado Boulder. Leslie, uh, could you talk a little bit about um, even though uh, animals have been uh, accepted into our homes, they're seen as members of our family, in reality, uh, you know, they are seen as property. And, and that, that's why it can be complicated um, at the, the vet's office if uh, there's a situation where an animal can uh, live for some time. But really, it comes down to if the pet owner has the financial um, resources to, to choose a certain treatment to prolong a life.
3: Yeah, veterinarians are in a really challenging position because legally, the, the owner can say, you know, this, this animal should be getting this or that treatment. Um, and if that treatment is euthanasia, that is within the owner's right to say, as with the animal as, as property. Now, um, the veterinarian has the obligation to uh, alleviate suffering. So the veterinarian has to juggle the patient's best interests with what the the human client uh, is willing and able to provide. But that that property status is something that um, it sounds very negative, but it, it actually in many ways is a protection for animals because if... If animals are our property, then that's a safeguard in animal welfare and animal abuse issues because you can you can track down an owner, you can prosecute an owner. If if the animal is not your property, then you're not responsible for him or her in any way. And so the 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 legal and ethical questions surrounding the property status of animals uh, have far-reaching implications. This is
0: where we live. Uh, today, we're talking about human attachment to pets, also uh, the grief uh, that many experience uh, when they lose their uh, animal companions. You can join us, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 275 Chris is calling. He's on the road. Hopefully, Chris, you're uh, pulled over as you, as you talk with us today. Hi. Um, could you hear me okay? Yes, go ahead, Chris.
1: Yeah, um, when I first was dating my wife um, a long time ago, my wife was never allowed to have a pet because of her crazy father. And we got um, a cat. We lived in Brooklyn at the time. We got a Brooklyn Alley cat. She was 34, I was 37. This cat was one in a million. It meowed in a million different ways. It would fetch like a dog, beer caps, and paper balls. Um, it had all kinds of quirks. And it died suddenly when it was only nine. And we were just devastated. Um, I mean, I had lost two cats when I was younger, in my early 20s, the cats that I'd grown up with since I was a child. And, of course, that was upsetting. But this was worse because, you know, it was my cat with my girlfriend. You know, I guess, I guess we were married when the cat died. Yeah, by the time the cat died, we were already married. But here's the other part of it. Um, I guess three weeks later, we went out and got a new kitten. And the new kitten, in a lot of ways, is even better than the other one, I hate to say. Um, It's more affectionate and sweeter. The other cat had a mean streak towards my wife, would attack her leg and stuff, you know. Um, So it's weird. I was just going to comment how if your wife or your mother or your son died, you can't go out and replace them, but you can actually replace a pet. It doesn't replace the actual pet. You know, our first cat was Tiger Lily. There's only one Tiger Lily. But the new cat, like I said, is even better in certain ways, and we love it dearly, you know?
0: Well, Chris, thank you uh, for sharing the story about uh, the many cats in your life uh, today on Where We Live. Again, as we talk about human attachment, I wanted to go back to Leslie Irvin, who's a sociologist. Uh, In your research and research of of others looking at animal cognition, uh, what have we learned that may make it even harder for us to think about these end-of-life decisions? I think there was a a story a few years ago about how dogs have the vocabulary, I think,
3: of a Four year old? (laughs) Some do, yeah. Um, Well, what we know about animal cognition and emotions changes every day. We, um, you know, I'm not all that happy saying, well, look, they're just like humans uh, because we are animals too. So we're just discovering that that we do a lot of the same things. So, as your caller pointed out, the, the Animals feel replaceable in ways that human beings are not, but you could still have a stronger attachment to an animal that you could to than you could to a human being.
0: Uh, uh, we have a veterinarian studio with us, Dr. Jenna and, uh, Giangara. Did you want to add uh, to what uh, Chris was talking about his sentiment of being able to replace uh, animals that we've lost?
5: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, even going back to one of your Previous callers or messages uh, um, that the the home will feel em- The home feels empty. Um, I uh, personally, I just recently lost uh, my dog, and it it was it was bizarre um, to come home and there's just a certain atmosphere within the house when there's a pet there, and you know the pitter patter of nails on on the hardwood floor. Um, and, you know, so, so, you know, my husband and I have been talking about when we want to introduce another dog into the house and right now is not quite the right time, but I, I mean, you need to allow yourself the, kind of the grieving process. And for some people that takes a couple of years and some people that, you know, um, it doesn't take as long for them, but. But yes, I mean, we're definitely a family that will
0: always have animals <laughs> in the house. Uh, what you mentioned, uh, to Dr. Gianguera, sounds uh, similar to a, a listener who wrote on Facebook, Susan, uh, they lost their dog Pete, and uh, she said... Um, I will always say I will suffer their loss, the pet's loss, before I allow them to suffer. I think other pet owners understand. But there are those who say, oh, you'll get another dog. But they don't get it. I didn't lose a dog. I lost a family member. But Mm -hmm. that is a common sentiment people will say is, oh, you can always get another dog or cat. But it's not always the best thing to say to somebody. Right. right. I I mean, I think it's something
5: to... to consider it is the timing. You know, you need to allow yourself the the grieving process um cuz I think it's healthy for one thing, but um but every process is going to be a little bit different. I think cuz you wouldn't say um that same thing to someone who, you know, had an an infant loss, you know, like oh, we'll just I mean, I can't even say the words out loud because I feel like that's just too tragic Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know you would never say that and and even though people may not understand you know because again there's it's just a pet is is a common phrase that and just because you don't understand the emotional attachment that this person has to their pet does it mean that it's it's less valid or it's not real Um, and I think that that is really where you know kind of the respect. Of, of that bond is really important.
0: You were talking about the loss of, of your pet, and we heard from a, uh, Samantha, who's a certified vet tech. Uh, she left a voicemail saying she lost her seven year old German Shepherd this summer. Uh, she never found out uh, the cause of her dog's passing, but this is something that uh, she wanted to share with us.
4: My coworkers were extremely supportive, um, they really helped me out during that time. However, doing my job as a nurse, was really difficult trying to be there monthly for patients that came into the office. I found it really hard to be there um, and I didn't know whether or not it was appropriate to share with some people and some clients I did share what had just happened and some I didn't because it didn't feel appropriate to tell them my awful story when they're facing potentially losing their own pet.
0: That's tricky when uh, you work with uh, you know with pets and you've suffered a loss and then you're being reminded every day yeah. about uh, this particular animal bereavement time. We d- we mentioned this uh, earlier with Leslie. Is that something that um, that uh, other veterinarians or clinics offer their staff? Yeah, I'm I I do think so. I think
5: you know my field in particular, it's it's something that I see more commonly than maybe you know someone in a in a different field. Um, you know, it's not near. it's generally, in my experience, um, it's not as long as what you would expect for, you know, like a husband or a grandmother or something like that in terms of the of length of time your bereavement can be. But I think, especially in, in my field in particular, people are, are very understanding and respectful of, of the, the grieving process um, when you do lose a pet.
0: From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. In studio with me, Dr. Jenna Gianguera, a surgeon and veterinarian at Veterinary Specialists in West Hartford. Uh, Also, our guest from Colorado was Leslie Irvin, professor of sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Her book is If You Tame Me, Understanding Our Connections with Animals. Leslie, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about the role of veterinarian uh, in end-of-life care, including um, what they go through when they have to see uh, people uh, suffering loss and also performing euthanasia uh, weekly. And you can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today, we've been talking about uh, pets and our attachment to them, as well as a grief that we experience when we lose them. My in-studio guest, Dr. Jenna Giangara, veterinarian and surgeon at Veterinary Specialist of Connecticut in West Hartford. And uh, Rick has a question for you. Uh, Rick from Newington, go ahead.
1: Yeah, hi. Um, I uh, am a professor over at the University of St. Joseph, and we address um, these issues a lot with our uh, classes in the clinical mental health counseling program. And uh, as the uh, companion of an older dog, now 16 and in failing health, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of anticipatory
0: grief. That's a good question, Rick. Oh, um, that's,
5: I, that is an excellent question. <laughs> um, you know, I I think that, you know, as you reach sort of the, the end of of life, discussion. Um, you know that is a, a conversation that you should probably have with your veterinarian about. You know what are um, what are certain expectations I should have. Um, you know it's hard to predict. A lot of people want kind of a defined timeline, um, and it's not um, it's not always that easy to to say. Oh, well, you have X number of months or or whatever or by this time you should expect this milestone to to have passed um, and so that's a little bit a little bit hard but I what I try to instill with my um, clients for my patients is that um, you know enjoy the time that you have right now and um, you know if they like going to the park go to the park you know if they like playing fetch, play fetch have as many good days as you can um, you know, and really don't, don't, unfortunately, um, there is that inevitable end, but don't dwell on that and really enjoy the time that you have with them while, while they're here.
0: I wanted to bring into our discussion, Dr. Lisa Moses, a palliative care veterinarian at the MSPCA Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston. She's also an animal ethicist at Harvard and Yale. Uh, Dr. Moses, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, the reason we invited you on is because we wanted to hear more about uh, of, uh, the conversation that veterinarians have among themselves because uh, you're in a job that can be emotionally uh, taxing at times and there's something called, uh, um, I think it's um, moral distress that you're experiencing. Talk a little bit uh, us through about what that is exactly.
2: Sure. Um, what we're talking about is the emotional experience that veterinarians have when they are asked to provide care to patients and they provide that care or even consider providing that care that they feel is the wrong thing to do so sort of the impact that doing that on a repeated basis has on a professional and the reason that we've been talking about this Is that it's something that most veterinarians intuitively realize we experience because so much of our work involves what are essentially ethical dilemmas you know as your previous guests have been talking about veterinarians have distinct responsibilities to our patients to the people attached to our patients to public health, to society at large, but we also in general are people who have really strong personal moral compasses about the work we do. I have not met a veterinarian yet who entered the field for any reason other than they really wanted to help.
0: Can you talk a little more about some of those uh, situations that that lead to this distress uh, in a a veterinarian's line of work?
2: Sure. Essentially what we're talking about is when a veterinarian is asked to provide care that they think is not in the best interest of their patient. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those situations are due to inescapable financial constraints. We all understand that and we accept that, but it still doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. Some of it, on the other hand, is being asked to provide care to animals that have either a very poor prognosis or whom the veterinarian already feels is really suffering needlessly. And we're being asked to continue to provide medical care in a situation that, to the veterinarian, feels futile. Mm.
0: Uh, So how do veterinarians work through that? Well,
2: that is a really good question, and the results of the piece of research that I that I published not that long ago essentially say that we don't have good ways to work through that and that, that a large majority of veterinarians actually suffer because we don't have great ways to work through that.
0: Mm. I think the statistic is one in six veterinarians uh, have considered suicide?
2: Um, there are various statistics floating around. They are similar to that. Um, yes. There's no, that, that is one that came from the CDC in about 2014, and um, the same piece of research said that nearly one in 10 may have serious psychological distress. Mm. And that really was what prompted me to do some more research on this subject.
0: Mm. We have a vet, another veterinarian studio with us, Dr. Jenna Giangara. Can you talk a little bit about the, this, this term moral distress and, and how you work through uh, these issues?
5: Um, I definitely think that that is, you know, real um, with what my line of work, I am, I have specialized within surgery. And so, um, you know, I I do have a population of patients that are otherwise healthy and coming in for elective surgery. And then I have another population of patients that are very sick and are coming in to, you to have surgery because they are very sick, and um, setting up the owner for appropriate expectations can be hard uh, in some situations because in their eyes they think that surgery will fix it, but maybe that's barely a band-aid on a, a larger problem, um, and and they they can feel desperate, and so sometimes it doesn't matter how much I tell them that this is not going to fix the problem. Um, they are are very insistent upon it. And so it it can sort of push us a little bit into a corner in terms of, you know, are we we really doing the right thing for for the pet? Um, And I I have been the punching bag for some owners on occasion um, when they don't want to accept what I have to to offer to them. And it is hard, um, but I try to compartmentalize certain things and um, recognize that they're going through um, an em- emotional time. And unfortunately, I am the embodiment um, for for this emotional distress in their life. Um, and I, I try not to take it personally. I don't think that it's a personal attack. Um, I'm not saying that it's okay <laughs> by any means, but I try to compartmentalize it um, in a way that, you know, I can continue to do what I love to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Dr. Lisa Moses is also with us, palliative care veterinarian at the MSPCA Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston. We were talking about um, how uh, the the job of a veterinarian can impact uh, their mental health, and I'm I'm wondering if there have been um, efforts to uh, maybe emphasize more self-care, or is there more of a focus during veterinary school about how to give uh, uh, prospective or uh, future veterinarians uh, tools to help them in their line of work?
2: Sure, Um, this is a topic that is getting a lot of interest amongst the larger public and the veterinary profession in general, and my particular interest in this is how ethical conflict in the course of veterinary practice really fuels some of the hits to veterinarians' well-being. And I think what I have seen everyone absolutely really wants to grapple with this and raise awareness about it, but I think there's a little bit of a muddling Mm -hmm. between overall well-being and issues like introducing self-care practices um, with the roots of why there's a problem in the first place. So my efforts are largely directed at talking about this idea that ethical conflict can cause Feelings of distress, sort of separate from the idea of um, does things like changing employment practices, changing self care practices, fix well being? I think those things are very linked, but I don't think they're exactly the same thing. Mm. One of the things that you were talking about earlier that I think is really pertinent to this discussion is the decision-making model that happens in the veterinarian's um, course of practice. What I mean by that is that many veterinarians, because of some of the peculiarities of our practice, for example, you talked about the issue of animals being property, that's a biggie. And um, veterinarians often tend to have Difficult conversations with clients from the perspective of the animal is their property The pet owner the animal owner the client gets to call the shots and make the decision about What they want to do and however, I feel about it is almost besides the point What I would advocate as a way to kind of address some of this um, hits to our well-being and the moral distress is that the veterinary profession make a real concerted attempt to move towards a shared decision-making model which is also being advocated for human health care at this point point. Um, and what i mean by that is the idea of it being a team effort where the veterinarian is not a um, kind of robotic not emotional not um, emotionally connected to the decision and and i Think that we have to as veterinarians give ourselves permission to share with pet owners that we do have feelings about what happens to our patients um, there are patients we care and I want to communicate to the pet owning public that if you develop a trusting relationship with your veterinarian and you can talk with them about what they really think is the right thing to do, it may overall end up feeling better for everybody and maybe even improve patient care.
0: We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Again, Dr. Lisa Moses is a palliative care veterinarian at the MSPCA Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston, also an animal ethicist at Harvard and Yale. Dr. Moses, thank you. Thank you. Also, Dr. Jenna Gianguera, who's a surgeon and veterinarian at Veterinary Specialists of Connecticut in West Hartford. Thanks for coming on today. We appreciate it. Thank
5: you so much for having me.
0: Uh, today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Also, special thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf, and to Lydia Brown. And thanks to our listeners who participated in our first voicemail project to, to call ahead of time to leave your comments uh, related to the topic. Uh, it's not easy to talk about pet loss and grief, but we hope that we uh, gave you the opportunity to think think. think more about um, this topic that, again, impacts uh, many of us at some point in our lives. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. As always, thanks for listening.